One night about five years ago, just before bed, I saw a tweet from a friend announcing how delighted he was to have been shortlisted for a journalism award. I felt my stomach lurch and my head spin. My teeth clench and my chest tighten. I did not sleep until the morning. Another five years or so before that, when I was at university, I was scrolling through the Facebook photos of someone on my course whom I vaguely knew. As I clicked on the pictures of her out with her friends laughing, I felt my mood sink so fast I had to sit back in my chair. I seemed to stop breathing. I've thought about why these memories still haunt me from time to time, why they have not been forgotten along with most other day-to-day -day interactions I have had on social media, and I think it's because in my 32 years, those are the most powerful and painful moments of envy I have experienced. I have not even entered that journalism competition, and I have never once been out partying and enjoyed it. But as I read that tweet and as I scrolled through those photographs, I so desperately wanted what those people had. Those are the opening words to an article I read this week called The Age of Envy, How to Be Happy When Everyone's Life Looks Perfect. And this was an interesting read for me because I think that social media, or forgive me, the, the opening quotation, kind of the question that the article set to answer was this, social media has created a world in which everyone seems ecstatic apart from us. Is there any way for people to curb their resentment? And I thought this was a good question. Is, there, is it possible for us to curb the resentment we feel for people who have more than us? But the one thing I disagreed with is that social media has created this world of resentment. I think social media has helped highlight this world of resentment. But we know that jealousy and envy and resentment go back to the fall. The very first murder ever committed was a murder born from jealousy. Jealousy and envy are conditions of the fallen human heart, not the products of social media. Though social media, I think, does exacerbate the problem. And it is in this age of envy that people are filled with resentment and jealousy and covetousness. And today's text is going to show us just how ancient and destructive jealousy really is. We saw last week we finished David's defeat over Goliath. And we saw how that, that defeat has brought him fame and popularity. And we're going to see him receive even more fame and even more popularity. And unfortunately, Saul will not be able to stand this. Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18 as we continue in our sermon series through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 18, we will read this entire chapter together. First Samuel chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, if you would please follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, Have they ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands? What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be a son-in-law to the king? But at that time, when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the, Mahal, the forgive me, Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, that the hand of the Philistines be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines and brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. As often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Well, at the end of this long chapter, David's life has changed quite rapidly. The text begins with one of the rarest political actions the world has ever seen, and that is a prince, the heir to a throne, willingly and gladly giving up his kingdom. The text begins, David has a new friend. He has a new companion. Saul's son, Jonathan, who's supposed to be the heir to the throne, 
has seen in David not only a kindred spirit, a fellow young man of courage and war and prudence, but he has seen the work of God in David's life. He knows, just like Saul knows, it is evident to all the Lord is with David. And so he surrenders his throne. And we know that because the way he gave away his, his robe and his war and his, his weapons of war, that was symbolic for you now maintain my position. He made a covenant of friendship with him. David now is being recognized as the rightful next king. He now has a new best friend, a new companion. History, by the way, if you were to just read any old history book, you will find that typically people are murdering other people in order to gain power or to protect power. As a matter of fact, that's what Saul tries to do in this very text. He tries to kill David to protect his throne. But Jonathan does one of the rarest things in all of politics. He actually willfully lays down his power and his authority. It is quite amazing. And David now has a faithful new best friend. We also see David's life has changed. He's now famous. One of the last times we saw David, he was the young shepherd boy that wasn't even invited to his father's party. And now he's entering Jerusalem and the women are singing songs about him. And he's made a commander of Saul's armies and he's so successful that he's just growing in popularity. David is a superstar in Israel now. We also see that David is now royalty. Not just symbolically with Jonathan, but actually he now lives in the palace full time. We saw in 1 Samuel 16 that he would sometimes be in the palace in order to play music to help Saul. And then he would leave and go with his father. But he's now there full time. And then in the course of events, he is made a commander of the armies. He is now a full-time political leader. He now is truly royalty. We also see him entering into the royal line because he marries one of the king's daughters. He doesn't marry Merab, who he's supposed to marry. Saul wrongfully withheld her from David because at that point in time, Saul was not interested in fulfilling his oath and actually giving David the prize he won when he killed Philistine. He was not interested in that. So he was going to keep making excuses to hide his daughters from David. But then, when he found out Mishal loved David, he thought, I've got a good idea. This kid needs a bride price, and he can't pay it. I'll give him a dangerous bride price. So he uses his daughter to further this evil agenda of his, but it doesn't work. And so now David has been given in marriage into the royal line. David is now royalty. So we've seen David's life change tremendously. But I would submit to you that as we read this long chapter, David is not actually the focus of this story. David was certainly the focus of 1 Samuel 16. He was certainly the focus of 1 Samuel 17. But I think Saul is the main character in this chapter. I think Saul is the person being highlighted here. And so I want us to focus in on what we see happening to Saul. What, what, what is going on with Saul, his, his actions and his intentions that teaches us something about God and how we should live. I think that this is really where our focus needs to be today. And we are going to focus on Saul's jealousy. As Saul heard the congregation of Israel singing the victory songs, he noticed that David was getting more attention than him. David was being described as more of the victor, more of the hero than him, which he was. And Saul couldn't take this. It made Saul jealous, and his jealousy then led to anger, and then his anger led to fear, and then his fear led to murder. Sin works like that. 
Sin is never content to be isolated or alone. Your sin always wants to buddy up with more sins. When we let sin fester in our souls, it will never seek to stop growing and polluting our entire body, leading to other further sins. You can see this in many places in the Bible. The book of James talks about this. There are other places in Scripture that talk about how sin breeds more sin. Saul begins with this jealous, envious, coveting heart, and it leads to further sins. Uh, we read the whole chapter because I think the chapter is really structured around Saul's three attempts to murder David. His jealousy led him to fear and anger, and that fear and anger led him to murder. So let's look again just briefly at the first attempt, verses 10 through 11. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. So we remember one of the first things that brought David in 1 Samuel 16 into the palace was when Saul would get these evil spirits from God, David's music would make them go away. But now because Saul hates David so much and he's so enraged and he's so jealous, the music's not working. And so in this fit, in this spiritual rage, the music doesn't work. And on two separate occasions, he tries to throw his spirit at David. Now, I don't know why David didn't make a bigger deal of this. Like, if I were David, it's time to leave the palace now. My assumption, this is speculation, the text doesn't tell us, is it was very obvious when Saul was kind of under the possession of this spirit. If, if you were to reread 1 Samuel 16, that would be made obvious. And so I think most likely David just chalked it up to, that's uh, just because of that evil spirit. This is not who Saul is, right? Like, I'm, I'm not in constant present danger. He just kind of chalked it up to that fit of rage. I don't know, but for some reason, David seems pretty comfortable living in the palace even after Saul, on two separate occasions, tried to kill him with a spear. So really, we could say Saul tried to kill him four times, but the text lumps the two together, so we'll lump them together. So Saul first tries to murder David out of rage and anger and jealousy by throwing a spear at him, and that doesn't work. So then Saul has another idea. You know, David's presence, he can't kill the guy, and his presence is only making things worse. He hates the guy. So he says, I want him out of my sight, out of the palace. I'll make him a military commander. And this is the best of both worlds. So now, not only will he not be around me, and people can stop talking about David and fraternizing with David, but, I mean, you can only be a military commander so long before your luck finally runs out, right? <laughs> you, can't, you can't be engaged in constant warfare and expect to last very long. So you know, the Philistines will just kind of over time take care of David. We see that in, uh, look at verse 13 with me. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And then look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So we see Saul's motives and why he decided to demote David from this kind of palace minstrel and make him a commander of the armies. He's thinking, I don't got to kill David. I can let the Philistines kill David. By the way, the very sad reality is David learns this lesson all too well. If you remember David's famous sin with Uriah, this is exactly what David does to kill Uriah in 2 Samuel. He wants Uriah dead, so he makes Uriah the commander of an army, but unfortunately, it actually works then. So he makes David the commander, thinking, uh, you know, the Philistines will take care of him. But the problem is, is the Lord is with David. 
it doesn't work. Uh, David is valiant and courageous, and he's actually very good at his job. And uh, things aren't working out very well. David's only growing in popularity and growing in success. So he has a third idea, and that is to make a bride price a dangerous reconnaissance mission. Well, actually, it's not reconnaissance. It's just full-out warfare, right? As David is the commander of military, he kind of just fight as battles are necessary. But what he does in this third is he thinks, I've got an idea. I'll give Michal to him, and I'll demand a bride price, which he really shouldn't, right? He was the, the person who killed Goliath was promised a wife, it's, it's really unfair and unjust that he's even asking for a bride price. But David, in his humility, accepts it. David says, I, I really shouldn't deserve a wife. I, I'm a poor man. I don't, I don't have money to pay. And so Saul thinks, I've got a great idea. I know how you can pay me back for my daughter. And look what he says in verse 25. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Later on in the text, it tells us that before the time expired, David brought back not just the required 100 foreskins, but 200 foreskins. So he went above and beyond. He definitely deserves to be married to Michal. But what's the point? Saul gave him a, a timeline. And he, so this isn't just like, hey, fight battles when they're necessary. He's saying, you need to go out and instigate war. You've got a timeline, and you need to kill 100 Philistines, and then you can marry my daughter. So this is his third attempt. He sends them on what should be a suicide mission. But David, because the Lord is with him, comes back above and beyond. So the text is structured around Saul seeing the Lord's anointed. The text is very clear. He knows God has departed him and is with David. He sees the Lord's anointed. He's jealous. He's angry. He's fearful. And he tries to stop. He tries to thwart what God is doing in David. His jealousy leads him to oppose God. But because God is God, he is unsuccessful. And so I think as we summarize the story that way, that gives us our two primary sermon points. That gives us the, the, the structure of what we are trying to learn from 1 Samuel chapter 18. We learn two things from 1 Samuel 18. Let's focus on those things now. The first thing we learn through Saul is the folly of opposing God. The first thing we learn, the lesson we learn from Saul is the folly of opposing God. It is a foolish task to oppose the will of God. Saul did everything he could to take down the Lord's anointed, and he not only failed, he exacerbated the problem. Isn't it interesting? Every time, the, the text is, is sort of sent around these three murderous attempts, and every time there's a murderous attempt, all that happens is David grows in popularity. First, the text begins where Saul has essentially lost his own son. Jonathan is not on Saul's team. He's team David. David loves, or Jonathan loves David. And then David comes into the city and all the people love David. So he tries to kill David and it doesn't work. And so he makes David a commander. And now David is winning all these battles. And the text tells us he went out, he came in and went out. The people saw him leave for war. The people saw him return victorious. He's only become more and more of a superstar directly because of the position Saul has put him in. Saul says, well, he'll die by trying to get me 100 foreskins. And he comes back with 200 foreskins. Every time Saul tries to kill David, love for David grows. Jonathan, the people, his own daughter. He's now lost a daughter and a son to David, and he's now lost the people of God to David. 
And most of this is happening because of his actions. If he would have just let David alone and just let David be the palace minstrel, then maybe he would have fallen into irrelevancy. But he makes David a commander and David is now the war hero of all of Israel. He not only cannot oppose God, he's not just unsuccessful, he's anti-successful. He's making things worse for him. That is the power of God. And by the way, it's important for us to remember who Saul is. You know, if I, if I were to come up to any Christian audience and say, no one can oppose the plan of God, of course every Christian is going to agree with that. You know, what, what Christian is, someone who's been a Christian for a decently long time, to say, no, actually, you know what, I think sometimes, I think the world can win. I would argue there are some theologies in the Christian world that actually lead to that position. They don't know it. But at least in confession, there, no, one, no one, yeah, of course, you know, my next door neighbor can't thwart the will of God. But I want to remind us, Saul is not just any old schmuck. This is one of the, if not at the time, the most powerful man in the world. He's certainly one of the most influential, important people in this world. So it's easy for us to understand, like, yeah, the random person I see down the street can't thwart the will of God. But what about Mark Zuckerberg? He's got a lot of resources. He's got a lot of influence. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of power, can't he? What about the United States government? What about China? What about all of these corporations? I mean, we're not just talking about any old person. We're talking about people who make the world go round. There are people in this country who have more wealth and more power than some entire other countries. But that's who Saul was. That's who he was in his day. He was one of the most powerful men on earth. And yet his wealth and his power and his fame and his influence had absolutely no advantage when it came to thwarting the will of God. What do we learn? It doesn't matter who you are. How powerful you are, how rich you are, how famous you are, how attractive you are. It doesn't matter who you are. It is a foolish thing to try to thwart the will and plans of God. It can't happen. By the way, that is the central thesis we learn from the famous book of Job. Book of Job, one of the more interesting books that people, even non-Christians, tend to talk about. The suffering Job went through, the debate with his friends he went through. And you want to know what lesson Job learns at the end of it, when God finally confronts Job, this is the lesson he learns in 42 verse 2. Job says to Yahweh, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God wants to put David on the throne, he's putting David on the throne. There ain't nothing Saul can do about it. If God wants to do something in the United States of America, he's going to do something in the United States of America. There's not a soul a thing can do about it. If he wants to do something in the world, if he has a purpose for the world, there is no power of darkness that can thwart that plan. It can't happen. We get this also from the psalmist. 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Whatever God wants to do, he does it. Can't stop him, can't thwart it, can't change his mind. He does whatever he wants to do. It is a foolish thing to thwart the plans of God. So let this be a message to all of Christ's enemies. I don't suspect that there are any of Christ's enemies in this room today. But you never know who might hear this through the grapevine or listening to the recording back over. I don't know who might eventually hear these words. And if an enemy of Christ ever stumbles upon this message, let me warn you sternly, your opposition to the kingdom of God is futile. Your opposition to the kingdom of God is foolishness. It is folly to try to oppose the will of God.
That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn, equally important, is the corrosiveness of jealousy. Jealousy, envy, is corrosive. What does it mean if something is corrosive? It means that over time, it slowly and gradually breaks you down more and more and more. It grows over time. It breaks its host down over time. And that's what jealousy does. Jealousy doesn't stay put. It doesn't just remain as it is. If we don't mortify it, if we don't kill it, if we don't repent of it, it grows and it festers and it gets bigger and it bigger and it leads to other sins. It breaks you down. It's corrosive. The wisdom of Solomon teaches us this in the Proverbs. In chapter 14, verse 30, he tells us this, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. He says later on in chapter 27, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? He is presenting jealousy as far more destructive to your life than tempers and anger. You might be able to withstand the wrath of anger. No one can withstand jealousy. It rots your bones. And that is exactly what we see in Saul. His jealousy for David, his coveting what David is and what David has, it festers and it corrodes his soul. And it leads him into further wickedness. It gets to the point, the text tells us, I remind you again, he knows the Lord is with David. He knows that. He is actively opposing God. It's not even like he's just doing this thing and someone had to come and tell him, you know, you're actually trying to thwart the will of God. He knows he's doing that. He says, God is trying to do something here and I won't allow it. That's how depraved he has become in his jealousy. He's willing to fight with the almighty God. That jealousy is destructive. And so what do we learn from this text? We learn that it is foolish to oppose God. And we learned that jealousy is dangerous, to put it mildly. So let's focus our time then on how do we apply that, right? So this is what we've learned. How do we apply that? How do we take this into our lives? How can I take this sermon and go out into the world and let it change my heart and change the way I live? Well, let us take those two points and directly deal with exactly how we apply that. How do you apply this message that it is folly to oppose the will of God. I mean, the obvious one is don't try to oppose him. But because this is a room of Christians who I don't think are like Saul and you want to actively oppose the will of God, let me find a more applicable application for the Christian life. How does the Christian apply this message that it is folly to to oppose the will of God? Here's how we apply it. Be encouraged. Be happy. Be joyful. Christians should be the happiest, most encouraged people on the face of the earth. Why? Because our enemies can't stop us. Isn't that good news today? Isn't that encouraging news to know God is working in the world, He's working in our country, He's working in this state, He's working in this community, and there is nothing anyone in the world or in the country or in the state or in the community who can stop what God wants to do. Isn't that encouraging? Turn to Psalm chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the text begins in verses 1 through 3 by describing what we are very much continuing to see in our world today, the raging of the nations. The nations are raging against God and against Christ. The, the leaders of the nations have come together and they have made a plan to burst the bond of God from us. They know God has authority over us. They know that Jesus Christ has authority over the world and they're thinking, how can we sever this authority? How can we burst that bond? How can we get God and his son away from us? That's how to interpret the nations, by the way. That's what's happening in the world today. All the calamity that we're seeing, the spiritual insight is they are trying to burst the cords that unite us to our creator. Scary stuff, right? How is God responding to all this? Well, look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Is God afraid of the nations? No. God is not afraid. So this is what we learn. Be encouraged. Let the nations rage. Let the people, as the text says, plot in vain. No one can thwart the plans of God. How do we apply our first point? Be encouraged. Do not be fearful of the future. That doesn't mean bad things might not happen. Of course, bad things still happen. For whatever reason, God in his sovereignty and in his providence, it doesn't mean life is always easy for Christians. I'm not saying bad things don't happen. I'm not saying we don't have cause for concern or areas in our life that we need to fight against or focus on. I'm not saying to be lazy and to do nothing, but spiritually, emotionally, relax. God is in control. And it is folly to oppose his plans. Be encouraged. Take hope in the future. How do we apply then this jealousy principle? We see how corrosive jealousy is. How do we apply that? Well, let's be more specific than just simply saying not be jealous. Let's say this. Be content. Be satisfied with the life God has given you. Be content. Now, here's what I want us to do with the remainder of our sermon today. Because it feels so awkward to look someone in the eye, to look a room in the eye and tell them, be content. A lot easier said than done, right? How easy is that for me? Hey, you know what? You guys who just want all this other stuff, just stop wanting it. Just be happy. <laughs> it's easier said than done. So I want us to take this second principle and come up with some subpoints. I, I tried my hardest to give you from both this text that we're in today and as well as other wisdom from the scriptures. What are some actual action steps we can take to help us be content? Because I know it's not like a light switch. It's not that easy to just, okay, you know what? I'll just be content with my life. That can be a hard thing. How do we find contentment? How do we do that? How do we accomplish that? Well, let me give you a handful of things. First and foremost, it begins here, you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the gospel. What do we see in 1 Samuel 18? We need to see that all that's happening to Saul is ultimately the problem of his spiritual condition. Saul's ultimate problem is not murder, 
It's not anger. It's not fear. It's not even jealousy. It's that he is far from God. And when you're far from God, jealousy has a foothold. This is a symptom. Jealousy is a symptom of his spiritual condition. God is with David. God is not with Saul. David is near to God. Saul is opposing God. We have no hope in the world of ever being content with our lives without the gospel. And why is that? Because it is the gospel by faith in it that unites us to Christ. And when we receive Christ, we then receive the anointing, his Holy Spirit. And it is only the power of the Holy Spirit to make us born again, to make us new creatures, to regenerate us and give us new hearts, hearts that long to bear fruit, hearts that are capable of bearing fruit. You see, to kill the sin of jealousy and to bear the fruit of contentment is a spiritual work that cannot be done without the power of the Spirit. Why do I say that? That is Jesus' own testimony in John chapter 15, verse 5, when he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to conquer something as corrosive and evil and dangerous as jealousy, apart from faith in Christ, apart from the work of the Spirit, that is a fool's errand. You can't do it. Jealousy is far more powerful than the sinful human heart. You need the power of the Spirit. You need to abide in Christ. So first and foremost, you need the gospel. You need to believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins and rose for your justification. That he sits at the right hand of God and intercedes on behalf of his people. You need to affirm that message in your heart. And then and only then will you have the empowerment to fight something as powerful as jealousy. Step number one to contentment. Believe the gospel. Step number two, accept God's will. Accept God's will. I I had trouble to know exactly how to phrase this, so let me flesh this out. What I see, the example in Jonathan that I see, although the text doesn't make this explicit, I think we have good reason to see that David, or forgive me, Jonathan sees the anointing of David. Because I want to ask, how is Jonathan so content compared to Saul? Right? Jonathan has just as much to lose as Saul does. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. Saul's worried about losing his throne. That's Jonathan's throne too. He's losing it. And you know what? We read not that long ago, remember? Jonathan was the hero of the story. Remember when Saul was hiding under the tree and the Philistines were enclosing in and it was Jonathan who went up and crawled over the cracks and the Lord used him to conquer the Philistine army. Jonathan, before this moment, Saul was the coward. Saul was the guy no one liked. And Jonathan was the hero of Israel. Jonathan was the future king of Israel. And here comes David and says, Sorry, Jonathan, take a seat. I'm the hero now. Sorry, Jonathan, take a seat. I'm the new king of Israel now. And Jonathan accepts this. He embraces it. How was Jonathan able to do that? I I really believe it's because he saw this is the Lord's work. Jonathan was content knowing the only reason I was supposed to be king was because God made that choice. And now God has made a different choice. And you know what? I just want to go with God. Part of where I think jealousy really stems from, if we're really being honest about it, is when we're jealous for other things, when we're envy and have bitterness towards other people, it's because we think they have something we should have. That we deserve. And so what we've done is we're saying, this is not how the plan is supposed to go. Something's broken here. They shouldn't have gotten the promotion. I should have gotten the promotion. 
when we see the world is owing me something, when we see this as a broken plan, not how things should be, we are jealous for how things should be, but what if we took a step back and God told us, no, this is how it should be? Okay then, Lord. I'm just happy to know that I'm in your will. In other words, Jonathan was happy to just accept whatever lot he knew God was giving him. Doesn't it help you accept your lot in life if you consciously think about and know that my good and loving and gracious Father gave this to me? Your lot in life is not an accident. God gave you this lot. You wish you were taller. You wish you were prettier. You wish you were stronger. You wish you were smarter. God determined how tall you would be. God determined how you would look. God gave you your brain. When we rage against these things, we're raging against the good plan of God. So we reverse that process by saying, you know what, I wish I was taller, I wish I was shorter. No, God gave me this height and I love it. He gave it to me. He gave me this vocation. He gave me this family. When we see that this is God's will for my life, it helps us to embrace it and affirm it. Jonathan said, okay, fine. God wants David to be king of Israel. What do you have for me, God? I'm just one little part in your story. We need to see that this is the Lord's will. You didn't get the promotion because God didn't want you to have it. You can interpret that as harsh, but interpret that as good. The God who knows everything and the God who loves you more than anyone said, this job's not right for you. Good. Thank you, Lord. We need to see God's will in our circumstances and embrace them. This is the piece of the pie that God has cut for me. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God is right. You right now are right where God wants you to be. The family you have is the one God wanted you to have. I think that can help. Believe the gospel. Accept God's will. Here's another thing I want us to do. Let's maintain perspective. To help you be content, we need to maintain perspective. Why do I say that? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus is recognizing that we have this temptation to lay up treasures on earth. We see these treasures and we want them. I want that. I need that. And Jesus says, you know what? That's going to go away pretty soon. We need to maintain perspective. The vast majority of the times that we are jealous, envious, covetous, 99.9% .9 of the time, we are jealous for things that will one day fade. We are desirous for things that will not carry into eternity. We crave and covet things that mold and rot and pass away. We want more money. Your money won't go into the grave with you. You want a bigger house. That house will one day be bulldozed. And that house will have problems and leaks and fixes and... We want to look more attractive. Everyone's going to get old and saggy. I'm sorry, it's coming. You want to be taller, bigger, stronger. You're going to get old. You're going to get gray. You're going to get wrinkly. You're going to die. It's going to happen. Your strength won't last forever. Your looks won't last forever. Your money won't last forever. When you remember that, doesn't it help you? Maybe I don't need to care about that so much. Don't lay up treasure where people can take it. How sad is it that there are people who dedicate their whole lives to something a thief can steal? They dedicate their whole life to getting that car and someone takes it. And Jesus says, you know what? You can dedicate your life to things that no thief can take. Isn't that better? 
And by the way, related to this point is the additional point that far too often the things that we are envious for are things that even if we got them before they rusted and decayed wouldn't actually satisfy us the way we think they would in the first place. Isn't it interesting that rich people get divorced? Jeff Bezos is the richest person on the face of the earth. Richest person in all of human history. He got divorced. Bill Gates got divorced this year. What did all their money, all their wealth, all their fame, all their success do for them at home? Didn't help make them happy. Many of you in here have been through marital strife. It's really painful. Bill Gates' fancy house was not able to protect him from the pain of marital strife. It hurts really bad. His money didn't make him happy. The vast majority of the things you think you want, I promise, will not actually make you that happy. Let me give you a very personal example, something that I have been struggling with in my own life. For those of you who know, before God blessed us with Matthew, before Layla conceived Matthew, jealousy was a very real sin in my life. Uh, the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And our friends, our loved ones would come up to us and tell us that we're pregnant. And rather than rejoice with them, we would weep. We would sin. Because we were jealous. Because we wanted a child. Why, are, why do they get children and we don't? It's not fair. Give us our child. We wanted a baby. And I used to pray. I, I, I honestly used to say these words. I'm so embarrassed by it now. But when I would pray for a child, I would often say things like, God, I'm not asking for much. All I want is one. Can you, can you just give me one kid? Just one? I'm not asking for a family. I just want one baby. Please. That's all I want. And then the Lord heard my cry. And he gave me a child. And I rejoiced and I was happy. But you know what I've started doing? I walk outside and I see my neighbor's kids running around playing with each other and I think, doesn't Matthew deserve siblings to pray, play with? I come here in church and I see the Boggs and I see Gabe and Uvia's kids. I see all these kids running around playing brothers and sisters who love each other. Doesn't Matthew deserve a brother or a sister? God, what's the hold up here? My son is not even three months old. It took less than three months for my heart to stop being satisfied with what I told God would satisfy me, and I'm now jealous for something new. All I wanted was a kid. That'll satisfy me. And guess what? It didn't. The things you want will not satisfy you. You could be prettier. Your life will still be hard. You could be faster. Your life could still be hard. You could be richer. Your life will still be hard. If we maintain that perspective, it will help us. I don't really care about that stuff. That won't actually satisfy me. By the way, David is the best example of this. It's really easy for all of us to look at David and think, man, what a life. Wouldn't it be awesome to be David, the hero of Israel, the great military commander, the king of Israel? He walks out into the city and the people are singing his praises. Wouldn't you love to be David? Read 2 Samuel and tell me if you want to be David. Read all of David's Psalms and tell me if you want to be David. 1 Samuel 18 did not protect David from losing Absalom. 1 Samuel 18 did not protect David from hating Uriah and killing him. David's wealth and fame did not protect him. Did not make his life easy. I don't want David's life, I tell you that right now. But Saul lost that perspective. We need to maintain perspective on these things.
The last thing that I would say, or no, two more things, but I promise I'll be brief. Another thing we do to help be content is we need to rethink glory. We need to rethink glory. What I'm not calling you to right now is, is, is a life like a monk. I'm not, I don't want to be materialistic. I don't want to put my hope in things that fade. So I'm just going to sell everything I have and I'm going to go live in a cave somewhere. I'm not saying that. You know why? Because there are things we're allowed to desire. There is a fame and there is a glory we're allowed to seek. And Jesus is telling us, just don't seek it here, but you can seek it elsewhere. If you want to be famous, good. Be famous in God's sight. Jesus tells his people, you should not pray out in public to be known by man like the Pharisees, but go into your room and pray in private and God will give you your reward. Go seek glory. Go seek fame. Go seek wealth. But not the kind that perishes, not the kind that can be stolen. You know who's the best example of this? Jonathan. Isn't it so funny? Jonathan, from a human perspective, has lost so much in this text. He's lost his throne. He's lost being the main character. He's lost being the hero. And yet I read 1 Samuel 18 and I want to be like Jonathan. He's the hero to me. I want my son to be like Jonathan. He's the hero to me. Notice that it was in submission. It was in humility that he earned a glory that can't be stolen. For thousands and thousands of years, people are putting Jonathan in front of the Christian people and saying, be like him. That glory is available to you. You see, you might desire the glory of hitting a game-winning shot in the national championship, but you know what? That's not available to you. I'm sorry, God just hasn't made you that athletic. You can't achieve that glory. Disney loves to tell kids they can do whatever they want. It's not true. There are some things you can't do. There are some avenues of glory and fame and riches and wealth and looks that God has cut you off for. But the glory of living a faithful, godly life is available to each and every one of us. So if you want to be content, be holy, be faithful, be righteous. Let that be your glory. That is far better than being the CEO of a Fortune 500. Far better. Rethink glory. The last thing, I want you to subtract temptations. Saul did 99.9% of everything wrong in 1 Samuel 18. The one thing he did actually kind of right was removing David from his presence. Now, it was wicked because he moved him. He didn't just move him from his presence. He removed him with the hopes of trying to kill him. Don't do that. God didn't bless that. He won't bless that. Don't do that. But I do think Saul was on to something, though. If David's presence is a stumbling block to him, then he should remove David from his presence. Why tempt yourself? So in your, fat, in your battle for contentment, I would encourage you to do this. Subtract temptations. Cut them out. Jesus tells us, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's causing you to sin? Cut it out. This might mean that you change the places you hang out. This might mean you change the place that you work out. This might change where you go to school or where you send your kids to school. For many people, as we begin, I think this is going to mean getting rid of social media. How many children are scrolling through their phones all day, seeing a fake, glamorized version of other people's lives, and it's causing them to be bitter and to resent their family, to resent their life, and to resent God, even though those images are fake. Those people are not that happy. If social media, if all you do is scroll and feel resentment and bitterness, delete it. Get it out. 
And I would encourage all the parents in here to be very, very careful at when you introduce smartphones and social media to your children. I I don't mean to be dramatic when I say it could ruin their lives. I also think that this means on the other side, if you're going to keep your social media, that's fine. But I would encourage you to examine your own heart and what you're posting. And others think, with my post, am I the stumbling block to somebody? Why am I posting this? I used to do this thing, I don't do it anymore. I'd buy a new book and I'd post it onto my Facebook. Why would I do that? Who cares what I'm reading? Maybe the church does. Why am I doing that? Let's be honest. It's to brag. It's to show people, look at this big smart book that I'm reading. Why does anyone need to see that? All that does is take the working man who's had a very hard time finding five seconds to read because he's working all day and he comes home to a wife who needs help. He has no time to read and then he has to go online and see, oh, his pastor's smarter than him. Why would I post that? I don't post that anymore because I was the stumbling block. I would encourage all, I would encourage all, before you post, examine your heart. Why am I posting this? Am I just trying to brag? I'm not saying every post has to be the gospel. You can share pictures of your life and share those things, but examine your heart. Am I just trying to brag? Am I trying to cause other people to be jealous of me and resent me? Don't cause them to stumble. Don't post those things. And if social media is causing you to be anxious and jealous and envious, cut it out. You would rather go to heaven without Facebook than go to hell with it. I promise. It is fully to oppose the plan of God. So we need to be encouraged. Be encouraged for the future. Take hope in the future. And jealousy is a powerful, corrosive sin in our lives. And so we need to be content. And I hope that I've given you five helpful ways to be content. But let me just encourage you with this. Hebrews 13.5 tells us to forsake the love of money and be content with what you have. For the Lord is with you always. Be encouraged and be content. Be content.